Hello and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Kunst. It took a few days, a week, but Mitch McConnell finally accepted his demotion to minority leader last week, last night, excuse me. He agreed to the same rules that were adopted the last time the Senate was split 50-50, which was in 2001. The Republicans were in charge then with the vice president, Dick Cheney, presiding. Chuck Schumer offered the same rules to McConnell that the Republicans had offered the Democrats in 2001. McConnell tried to get something better, specifically a commitment to preserve the filibuster. Schumer refused and McConnell blinked. So the Senate can finally get organized and among other things, Senator Bernie Sanders can take his place as the chair of the budget committee. But that doesn't mean that the fight for the filibuster is settled. In fact, it really was just put off until later in the year, a a negotiation tactic in a way. To quote President Biden, here is the deal. Biden has two priorities in the Senate right now, getting his appointees confirmed and passing a big stimulus bill. Under Senate rules, the filibuster cannot be used to stop either of these two. Under rule changes a few years ago, presidential appointments cannot be filibustered. That's why Amy Coney Barrett is the Supreme is on the Supreme Court today. On the stimulus, Biden is trying for a bipartisan deal. So good luck with that. Uh, <laughs> but if he doesn't get Republicans, the stimulus bill can still be brought to the Senate floor under what is known as budget reconciliation. This is a process to reconcile conflicting spending proposals when several different committees are involved in the legislation. Guess who is in charge of this reconciliation? The chair of the budget committee. That's right, Chairman Bernard Sanders. And when the budget committee reconciles everything, they can later send it to the floor under an expedited rule that requires only 51 votes to pass. So the 50 Senate Democrats and Kamala Harris could pass a stimulus package without a single Republican. So Biden has two paths, he says. He wants a bipartisan deal, unity, you know, and Republicans will be more likely to deal knowing that the Democrats don't actually need them, which is why it is so interesting last week when Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia the right flank of the Senate Democratic line softened his resistance to more stimulus checks. At first, he said he was flat out, flat out against them in a pandemic as we go spiral into the Great Depression 2.0. But now he says he'd just like to see them more targeted to those who are most needed help. Everyone? Biden will probably need to line up Manchin and the other 49 senators on his side. The real question is whether the vote that passes the stimulus plan is cast by Vice President Kamala Harris or by some Senate Republican who crosses over. My guess is Republicans have to respond to voters in need of economic relief, too. It's not just a Democratic issue. So the fight over the filibuster comes up after the cabinet is confirmed, after a stimulus is passed, and most likely after an impeachment trial with legislation that can't be considered until under the budget reconciliation rules. So that type of legislation would be climate action, civil rights expansion, police reforms, It will be hard to pass legislation in those areas without 60 votes, the vote that is needed to cut off a filibuster. A number of Democrats don't want to curb filibusters. Remember, it increases the power of every individual senator, as well as any group representing less than a majority on an issue. Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema 
of Arizona both reiterated their opposition to eliminating the filibuster. In fact, it was after these statements that McConnell dropped his demand for a commitment from Senator Schumer. Without Manchin and Cinema, it would be unlikely that Democrats could change the filibuster rule anyway. So they will now feel the full weight of progressive politics. Congresswoman Cori Bush weighed in with her three points on uh, the priorities that she wants addressed. So there you have it. Abolish the filibuster and pass COVID-19 relief for our communities. Convict Trump. Legislate like Democrats. Control the White House, Senate, and the House of Representatives, because we do. And that is why we like, we love Representative Bush here and never <laughs> disagree with her. But truth is, we don't even have to abolish the filibuster first. We can pass COVID relief, convict Trump, and then start legislating like Democrats control the government because they do. If McConnell and his cronies gum things up with filibusters, then Schumer must pull his team together, Manchin and Cinema included, and act, abolishing the filibuster and passing what changes the country needs immediately. Schumer made a tactical move yesterday when he told Rachel Maddow that Biden should consider declaring a climate emergency. I think it might be a good idea for President Biden to call a climate emergency. Hmm. Why? Because there he can, it relates to what you're saying. Then he can do many, many things under the emergency powers of the president that wouldn't have to go through, that he could do without legislation. Now, Trump used this emergency for a stupid wall, which wasn't an emergency. But if there ever was an emergency, climate is one. So I would suggest uh, that they explore looking at climate as an emergency, which would give them more flexibility. After all, it's a crisis. It's a crisis. So that was a message for Biden, but it was also a message for McConnell, warning him that if you won't work with us, we have other paths and we will just leave you behind. Nothing a legislator hates more than being left out. So stay close. There will be a lot of maneuvering before this fight is over. And we will be helping progressives navigate because, like I said last week, this is the moment. The Republicans are in disarray. They're losing their power. They're flailing, at least briefly. And so we have an opportunity right now to put extra pressure on not just senators, uh, specific senators who want to garner all of the power that they hold, but we need to remind them that the filibuster is not some partisan issue. Most voters don't want their government held up. Most voters do want to receive some sort of economic relief. That's not partisan. That's being a smart lawmaker, whether you're on the right or the left. So we have an opportunity right now to garner our power. And we also have a great show today. Uh, we have Lance from the Surfs here, and Owen Higgins will be on with him as well. Uh, but first up, we have Chicago Teachers Union leader, Kenzo Shibata. We will hear about the demands of teachers to protect themselves from COVID for COVID-19 workers' rights, uh, because this is a big issue right now. Across the country, workers are not being protected enough, and the teachers have finally uh, decided to step up, and there might be a strike this week. We will talk about that right after that break. But first, uh, make sure to click that like, like and subscribe button. Join us in the chat. This is the moment to do it. We got to get people activated right now. We are going to be a, a, giving you a lot more uh, organizational strategy. You know, we talk about this stuff on our show all the time. So if you are not already, make sure to click that little uh, subscribe button and the little bell so you know when we go live uh, with breaking news because this is these these next few months are so important. This is the time when we have to be strategic and organized and thoughtful 
and cultivate uh, our, our coalitions properly so that we can put real pressure on and we don't lose this opportunity. Because I'm old enough to remember what 2009 was like after Obama was elected. There is a runway and we have it right now with the Democrats in power. We have Chuck Schumer's ear. Maybe he's even afraid of being primaried. But there is a sea change happening. And so uh, we're going to do all we can on our show to help provide you guys with the tools uh, and the strategies to go out there and fight and win. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. So workers are fed up, as they should be, uh, not just with the conditions that uh, many have faced before, before this crisis, but there are extra conditions now that workers have had to deal with, uh, with COVID-19 and leadership across the country, uh, whether you're a worker at Amazon or a teacher, uh, they're, they're getting fed up that they are being put at risk, not only putting their communities at risk, their families at risk, but um, uh, students and their families at risk. We have Kenzo Shibata. He is a Chicago Teachers Union, a functional vice president of AFT-IFT Local One, and he is the host of class time podcast and he has a piece out uh in jacobin about how the chicago teachers may be on the cusp of another strike you gotta go check that out right now we will put that in the information section kenzo thanks for joining us thanks for having me on nomiki uh this is such a pleasure um and this is such a great time thank you for you know giving the platform to some teachers i'm here just to to represent my sisters and brothers right now are in this struggle. It's not just about me. Um, and uh, yeah, we do appreciate this. Absolutely. Well, I mean, whatever we can do to help out in any way uh, in solidarity. So, so let's, let's just um, kind of talk about how we got to this moment. Uh, Chicago teachers <laughs> have been facing uh, mayoral power and, and um, pushing back against really bad uh, decision and leaderships for, for, you know, the last decade or so um, continuously, but you know, I think we're, we're very aware of what you guys faced with Rahm Emanuel um, and now again with, with Mayor Lightfoot. Uh, but how do we get to this part of a potential strike? I mean, it takes a lot to build up to potentially going on strike. It's wild. Uh, so to, to really backtrack, if we go back to 2019, we went on strike. Uh, this was a monumental strike for us because this was a strike where we fought uh, to get a nurse in every building and we fought to get uh, counselors and uh, social workers in every single building and we won and we took we, uh, we took it on the chin in, in the media and we made some pretty big concessions to make sure our students had what they needed because you know, we couldn't predict a pandemic, but we're teachers and we understand these students um, are, you know, living crisis to crisis. And this just happens to be a time when we're all experiencing the same crisis. So it's not to say we predicted something like this, but we knew this needed to happen, like, you know, immediately. And the Board of Education has slacked on that and actually staffing the additional nurses and uh, and um, social workers in, in the buildings. So um, it's been an, an ongoing fight now, and now they want to force us back into the school buildings. And like I said, we still don't even have a nurse guaranteed in every school if a student would uh, or a, a teacher were to show COVID symptoms. Uh, so this is really, it's been a fight for resources for as long as I can think, you know, longer than my uh, 17 years in the board. Uh, but um, that, you know, I think really, it, it does really boil down to that. This just, 
I'm, I don't understand. I don't even understand from a fiscal perspective. Of if I was putting on a, a conservative hat, I, mm. I, 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 I understand the strategy to like privatize schools and shut them down. And, you know, the, the, the Betsy DeVos strategy, but in Chicago where she's just, it's just not going to happen. It's very clear. You know, you're not going to shut down all the public schools in Chicago and turn them into charter schools. It's just not Mm going to happen anytime soon. So why would they cut just enough funding to take nurses? It doesn't make any sense. How can you be a Democrat in office Mm -hmm. and literally cut the nurses from public schools pre COVID? Yeah. Um, And that's really the wild thing, too. About a year ago, when we started in a contract negotiations, the CTU, this has been the theme, the Chicago Teachers Union, we did the the, the homework and we worked with uh, state legislators to change the funding formula a bit. So we were flush with cash for the first time in my entire teaching career, in my memory. Uh, We had about, uh, we're operating at like about a billion dollar surplus a year ago. And that was money that should have kidding? gone directly. And, and we did the numbers. We're like, okay, here's some, even some conservative figures at like what it would take to put a nurse in every school to, uh, to put uh, counselors in every school. So basically care workers, additional source uh, resources for schools that have high homeless student populations. Uh, we, we fought for like a lot of basic, you know, even uh, social democratic reforms in that contract. And we're very proud of it. And if the board were to have enacted it with the money that we know they had, it would have at least mitigated this crisis we're in right now. Um, and then again, you know, when they were ready to open up the schools, when the board of education was were pushing to open up schools, they didn't want the union talking to them. They didn't want us at the table. So they had a really, um, cockamamie. I, I, that's the best way I could put it plan last summer. And the, the union was like, no, this is not going to work. So we just called a meeting of our representatives, the House of Delegates, to talk about a possible strike. And then the board caved and said, okay, we're going to go to distance learning. And ever since then, they've been just kind of creeping back and trying to get us back into the classroom before it's safe. Um, AFT President Randy Weingarten put out a an op-ed uh, recently calling for schools to be reopened. This was in USA Today. It was a very widely circulated uh, newspaper. It's not partisan in any way. It's it's like if you've ever stayed at a a hotel anywhere in America, it's the newspaper Mm -hmm. you get, Um, which is a strategy in itself uh, to have a place there. And she called for schools to be reopened. And I think, you know, most parents... um, this has been a tough one, right, uh, for mm-hmm. schools to be reopened because there are major consequences, and you know, there's some folks who cite statistics saying that you know young children are not uh, carrying COVID as as much, but mm. undeniably, it puts people at risk. Mm-hmm. And distance learning is is having a very difficult. Um, it's it's playing. It, there's a toll on families and on students and how it's going to affect their brains, um, and it's tough for teachers, of course. So it was controversial. Uh, she did call for it, it, testing, as you mentioned in your piece, um, very serious COVID testing. But again, you know, rapid tests are not necessarily the most effective and, and accurate tests. So why do this before the vaccine? That's that's my question. Why why is this that moment? Yesterday was a wild day of a big ricochet, but yeah, to get to your question, um, 
that's such a great question. So I, the see the Chicago public schools a week ago announced they had a big, you know what they do, the big pomp and circumstance, which, you know, in a time of a pandemic, maybe live press conferences shouldn't be a thing, but they're, they're doing this in schools and they unveiled this plan to get teachers the, uh, the vaccine. Wonderful. But like, you know, they, they did this, you know, at the end of the news cycle. So the papers over the weekend were carrying the story that teachers are about to be uh, vaccinated, but the, the devil was in the details because it's still not happening until at least mid February. And with this particular vaccine, that means we have to go back in mid March to get the second uh, part of the vaccine. Um, So there really isn't a plan for that, but I am still maintaining like that would at least be a place where we could start talking. You know, if, if the board were serious and said, once the teachers are vaccinated, then we could start talking about having a, a reopening plan, then I would think they're serious. But they are just glossing over the fact that I spent my lunch hour today, for example, trying to find um, a place to, to get signed up for the, the vaccine before the, the Board of Education does it. Um, so I was going through all the you know, the drug stores and uh, grocery stores are offering it and still to no avail. Um, it's not time. Like we just, there's no, the yeah, mayor we have needs vaccines to, in New York. I, I mean, I know that Chicago yeah. is a Chicago situation, but for the national president of the American Federation of Teachers, um, knowing very well, um, especially given her relationship living in New York, mm-hmm. uh, there are no vaccines in New York state, New York city. Uh, it, 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 I feel like, I mean, is it just posturing at this point? I really don't even understand what's happening. Like, so that I was going to, that's what I was talking about this ricochet situation yesterday. So Randy Weingarten, to be blunt, you know, she's a part of the big labor bureaucracy. She tends to do what the Democrats want her to do. Like she did this big op-ed in Politico when Bernie was running against Medicare for all, which uh, broke my heart to see the president of my union, not just say she doesn't like Bernie, but to say she doesn't like something that would impact uh, her members in such a positive way. Like if med- if healthcare were not on the table when we went to these difficult uh, contract negotiations, we might be able to negotiate more resources for our students or hell, uh, better salaries for ourselves, maybe like, to keep teachers in the profession longer. Um, but it's almost like she was being a day late and a dollar short because she issued that op-ed saying we need to open these schools because, you know, Joe Biden issued as part of his 100 uh, days in office uh, I mean, first 100 days, I'm not being too presumptuous, uh, first 100 days in office uh, promised to open up all the schools. I feel like she was like kind of taking his lead on that. But then did you see like he was quoted in the Chicago Sun-Times as saying, well, the teachers just want to wait until the schools are safe. Like he seems to be on our side about this. So I don't know. I think Randy needs to kind of go back and write a second op-ed now. <laughs> It is really an odd um, strategy and and it's like not everybody's on the same page. And I get that there's a lot of, uh, just from an organizing perspective, I think uh, folks are very overwhelmed, even if they're not on our side uh, on on these key issues. We're in a transition. COVID is, I mean, even with the vaccines, um, there's some inaccuracies in terms of how much, how many vaccines are being provided. But, you know, ultimately uh, this is, it's so, it's so refreshing to hear that you guys are, talking about striking. And mm-hmm. I, I guess, so So you've been in this situation before, uh, teachers across the country have been in this situation before when they've decided to go on strike from, from the ground up. Um, what is that dynamic like when you have a leadership that is not leading you in, in 
deciding to strike, but ends up having to support you because they're leading the National Teachers Union? Well, that that's a great question. Uh, Chicago, people often say we're the tail that wags the dog in some ways because, um, you know, we had as far as teachers union labor peace for like pretty much throughout the nineties, we did not have many teacher strikes, the eighties, the seventies and eighties, things were ramped up quite a bit. And then you had uh, neoliberal uh, mayors, a lot of major cities finding ways to uh, negotiate good contracts, but on the back end, get sweetheart legislation. Like for example, the legislation that gave the mayor of Chicago control of the Chicago public schools. That's a state decision. And this is what's so insidious about it. It was a state piece of legislation that only um, applies to school districts of more than 500,000, which one exists in Illinois. So you had people from downstate (laughs) and Southern Illinois exactly making these decisions because they liked the way Mayor Daley in the mid nineties governed because he governed like a Republican. And they were mostly conservative Republicans who blamed all the problems on the Chicago public schools and, you know, the, the coded Trump language of Chicago. Um, it, it, it's been in the state for a very long time. Um, so he was able to negotiate and over, you know, being able to take over the schools to do that. And that's, you know, that's really what put us in this mess right now is we don't have an elected school board. Our school board is not um, accountable at all to the public. They are only accountable to whoever the mayor is. So um, we can't, you know, it puts a, a big limit on how our pressure campaigns look because we could pressure b- uh, board members, but, you know, at the same time, they take direction directly from the mayor. Uh, so we have a question from one of our, our listeners. Patrick Emmerich says, my wife is a teacher and in union leadership in Massachusetts, and they have been continuously pushed without any concessions, but can't legally strike here in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Is striking explicitly illegal in Illinois? I think you sort of answered part of that, but... Uh, do you know much about how, how, I mean, there are obviously right to work states and Arizona is a perfect example, uh, you know, with West Virginia there, how, how do you navigate those dynamics if you are in a state that makes it harder to strike? I love that question because um, we have to start thinking about things very differently in labor. And um, so a lot of states, they can't legally strike. But if you look at our last three strikes in Chicago, our mayors have consistently uh, maintained that those were illegal strikes, tried to file injunctions. In some cases, you know, resolutions were, uh, you know, we were able to make resolutions before the injunctions uh, came to pass. Uh, you know, Rahm Emanuel in 2012 said that was an illegal strike, uh, which we won. Um And then in uh, 2019, again, Mayor Lori Lightfoot maintained that was an illegal strike, which we won. So, uh, you know, I I hope that other locals are looking to us. And I know that the red state strikers in like places like Arizona, uh, when they went on strike, they they directly cited um, Chicago Teachers Union as being a big inspiration. One of the big leaders of that strike was actually Rebecca Gorelli, who she kind of, she made her bones in union life in Chicago. So um, I'm hoping that we could be an inspiration to people because um, my friend Ramson Cannon wrote this great piece called Outlaw Country, which is in the Midwest Socialist website about how we just have to look at things very differently right now. We don't have a social safety net. We don't have, we can't rely on institutions really to save us anymore. We really only have solidarity. And the ruling class knows this. Uh, it's when we get to know that, when we actually actualize that, that's when I think we can really move mountains. 
Joe Biden, um, it's interesting because he comes out of obviously the Obama administration, which was very pro uh, charter school, Arne Duncan, mm-hmm. you know, mindset. Um, but Joe Biden's, Jill Biden, Dr. Jill Biden is a teacher. I believe his daughter is also a teacher. You know, there are these more traditional sort of democratic values that come out in him every once in a while. You know, he, he, he opens his mouth up and maybe didn't talk to his donors first or the collective <laughs> first. Um, even, you know, even how he, he wasn't on the same page with Randy Weingarten. Um, do you think that there's, there's more of an opening to support, fully support public schools, expand? I mean, it, the, the other thing to note, uh, I don't know how many people are familiar with this, is the largest donor to the Democratic Party are teachers. Mm-hmm. So, so traditionally, the way the labor bureaucracy works is that in good times, they're negotiating really good contracts for us, bread and butter, and we're doing well. And in bad times, the labor bureaucracy's job is to tell the workers to uh, limit our expectations. And just to clarify, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. when you say bad times, you mean like bad economic times yes. or like when Democrats are in power versus when Republicans are in power? Or both? I, you know, that's a great question because I think a lot of times labor bureaucracy frames it um, you know, bad times as being Republican versus Democrat, because things have just been consistently bad for like 20 years. I do think that's kind of how they mean it, um, is, you know, good times are when Democrats are in power and bad times are when Republicans are in power. But I mean, I even look at the 90s, just when teacher union contracts were um, bread and butter better, um, you know, pay was was not as bad uh, as things are now. Um and a lot of that came from from those kind of concessions. Um, but then, you know, when the uh, economy in 2008 took a nosedive, that's when labor leaders had to come to uh, to unions and say, you know, you have to limit, you know, your expectations on, on what we have next. So I think we really just have to, like, flip that. We just have to stop thinking of, of things like that and just always look at, you know, our unions are a force for making good in the world and a force for um, pushing, not just for ourselves, but for uh, things that are going to help our entire communities. Because at the end of the day, we do need our communities uh, to support us. Like when we do go on, go in action. So um, we really need this, like a seamlessness between labor and, you know, our, the communities we serve. Where do you see this going? Um, if you go on strike on Thursday, anything to predict? Well, um, it's going to be really hard. It's going to be hard on everyone. Uh, That was the theme of 2019. Um, One of the things I think is going to be really difficult is we can't physically be together as much. Those picket lines, um, they they warm a really cold heart (laughs) in the middle of the winter, Um, you know, singing solidarity forever. And these Zoom meetings aren't quite getting there. Um, (laughs) So... We're going to have to be creative, um, actually meeting with uh, some DSA strike and solidarity folks in Chicago. We're doing uh, some social media stuff to figure out how to like amplify that. Um, but, you know, as far as the, the outcome of this, we're going to win. Um, this, the, the city needs uh, educators, not just teachers. Our, our union has clinicians in it and paraprofessionals. And paraprofessionals tend to live in the communities they serve. They tend to live right around those schools. And um, we can really shut things down like we did before um, and have the kind of 
support of the community that we had before. Um, the one concern I have, because uh, I do think we're going to win and we're going to uh, maintain uh, distance learning for the rest of the year, is the amount of trauma that our members and our students are experiencing. Because the last strike, I don't feel like we ever really were able to heal since the last strike. And this administration is just continuously hitting us over the head. Um, so it's the after effects too, that um, are concerning to me. And, you know, I hope that we're able to speed up the process of getting more care workers in schools after this. Not to mention just the long-term effects of learning from home. I mean, not just the strike, but, but mm -hmm. what, what uh, so many students and teachers have been dealing with um, in this crisis. Do you see other, we, we talked briefly about how Chicago has inspired uh, other, you know, red state rebellions. Um, how would, do you see that happening, you know, in, in, in light of COVID and just how, I mean, not just the teachers, by the way, any, any workforce, do you see you guys, is there some sort of um, tactic to inspire other workers to organize? Well, you know, if history repeats itself, people are going to take our lead from it. Um, but, you know, to say that these things happen magically um, is disingenuous. We always have connections with other locals. Uh, other locals are constantly coming to us for advice. So uh, CTU leaders and uh, member organizers are going, you know, we've been traveling the entire country and the, actually the world. Um, some folks went out to Japan to talk about, uh, you know, it's not even a secret sauce we have, but our process that we have um, of, you know, creating these deep ties between our union and the community we serve. Um, so, you know, that, that's something I see happening more of. I think, you know, that's another reason why this is so stressful, I think, for a lot of us, is we understand the whole world is watching. Um, we are the tail that wags the dog when it comes to uh, teacher union militancy. And, um, we, we have to win, um, because other people are, are going to be taking our, uh, cue from this and we're, we're going to be here to help. Um, I know for sure I'm going to be, I'm more than willing to be on zoom calls once we win this with other locals to, to get them also, uh, teaching safely. Okay. When you win this, we have to have you back on and Absolutely. whatever you, you can say publicly to inspire other folks to, to do similar work. Love to have you. Thank you so much. No, Miki. I really appreciate you having me on. Of course, Kenzo Shibata. Um, good luck with you guys. Solidarity. Anything we can do to boost, amplify. Uh, go check out Kenzo. He has he has a great podcast too. He has this piece in uh, Jacobin right now. Great op-ed. You turn that around super fast. I was ins <laughs> <laughs> you inspired me there. Uh, he is not only the functional vice president of the Chicago Teachers Union uh, Local One, the AFT IFT uh, Local One, but he is the host of Class Time Podcast. He lives and breathes this. And and in between all that, he's just slaying on Twitter. Like nonstop. <laughs> like you talk about cloning somebody, like you're someone to clone <laughs> how you do it. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so good much luck. for having me on. Good luck, good luck. Thanks, All right, let's care. do a couple of uh, shout outs here. We have wow, look at this. Auto, I mean about to sleep. Z Z Z Z. That's am I putting you to sleep? Send us some love. I hope not. It's a Monday, I guess. Or no, it's a Tuesday. It's a Monday for our show. I always say this. I Always, everyone's like, no, it's Tuesday, not Monday for the show. It's my Monday. Uh, Kyler Asado sends us some love. Why is Joe Manchin and Cory Booker on the Senate policy leadership team? Bernie is in charge of outreach. So that's a conflict for sure. 
Great question. I don't know what goes behind those decisions. Huh, that's something to look into. All right, Tokyo Gouda sends some love, says Aquarius gang forming in the chat. Look out y'all, <laughs> you kids. Uh, I don't know where that came from, who inspired the Aquarius conversation, but I am an Aquarius. Uh, and I was told, so is Thomas Paine, who is our first book club choice. Of course, I'm talking about, oh God, of course, Harvey K. Spilled the Beans. The author, Harvey K., I knew it because he texted me. Don't forget to tell people it's Thomas Paine's birthday on Friday. <laughs> I was like, it's my birthday tomorrow. So, you know, Aquarius, we, we just, you know, we might be the best. I'm not... I have other favorites, but Aquarius is a special breed. Um, all right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with our amazing panel. Stick around. Lots of content. Lots of spiciness happened over the weekend. we got a lot of stuff to cover. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Uh, guys, are you in the chat? Are you like getting spicy? Are you debating your astrology signs? Is that what, is that the conversation you're having while we're having deep conversations about uh, strikes in Chicago? What's your astrological sign? Are we a dating service now? I'm just kidding. Um, if you are in the chat, thank you for, for, for making it spicy with uh, different content. It's better than sports, which is what I spent uh, two hours listening to on the majority report today. This is not a sports show <laughs> for sure. Um, but if you are also in the chat, make sure you're subscribing and liking. And if you are not already a member of our book club, we launched it this month. It's super exciting. We're moving on to our third book. Uh, there are several different types of, of book clubs you can join. There's one book a month where we send you a book. That's the Thomas Paine book by Harvey, Harvey K. Uh, we have two interviews up now with him. Second book is The Plunket of Tammany Hall. Uh, it is a classic. It is brilliant. And Arun Chowdhury joined us uh, this weekend to talk about The Plunket of Tammany Hall. And then uh, you can, of course, join and read four books a month, which is what I'm doing. And you should have two books that have arrived or will be arriving very soon. So that is our first month of the book club. Definitely check it out. All right. Owen Higgins is a reporter. Uh, he is based in the UK. I don't know if I ever knew that. Uh, he's a freelance journalist in the UK. He's very spicy on Twitter. He has been published in the, the Intercept, the Washington Post, the Appeal, the Outline, Vice, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, and Common Dreams, among many others. Thanks for joining us, Owen. And you are on mute, just so you know. Yes, I am. I, I live in New England. Oh, where did I get no. the UK? Okay, so there is another Owen Higgins <gasps> with my exact name. Stop who it. is a writer in Ireland, but he's a food and travel writer. Stop it. I know you. Yeah. And I was like, I don't think he's in the UK and I'm or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> All right. God, let's edit that out. Later. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, um, no worries. <laughs> no worries. Anyways. So I, you know, we've had some, some spicy stuff happen this weekend. Um, I, you know, we're, we're, we're spiraling into, we're having this debate right now, which you've been very present and part of, uh, on the left over who is legitimately on the left and who might be using some very popular, uh, policies to make themselves seem more legitimate on the left simultaneously while teaming up with, um, alt writers, Boogaloo boys, QAnon, who, who knows who, um, Tucker Carlson, Right, I've been on Tucker Carlson before to debate him. Probably won't go anytime soon now. Uh, but some folks go on Tucker Carlson to team up with him. But he he made a bold statement uh, recently. Let's play that clip, Tucker Carlson, his opinion on QAnon. The real threat 
is a forbidden idea. It's something called QAnon. Next, what to do about QAnon and its droves of loyal followers? Is it too little too late to bring our loved ones back to reality? Many of those who believe the totally unfounded conspiracies and prophecies of QAnon expected January 20th to be Judgment Day. As far-right figures and QAnon conspiracy theorists are joined by Trump supporters who believe the election was stolen. QAnon is better viewed as an on-ramp to various different extremism circles. How many people in the country have been marinated uh, in these conspiracy theories, QAnon craziness, uh, and it is frightening. Ooh, Mr. Tom Friedman thinks this is all pretty frightening. And he's right, but not as usual for the reasons he thinks. We're watching a profound change taking place in American society, and it's happening very fast. The stakes could not be higher. There is a clear line between democracy and tyranny, between self-government and dictatorship. And here's what that line is. That line is your conscience. They cannot cross that. Government has every right to tell you what to do. Controlling the behavior of citizens is one of the basic prerogatives of any organized society. That's why we have it. Government can try to prevent you from committing murder or rape or from speeding or jaywalking. That's all allowed. It's legitimate. But no democratic government can ever tell you what to think. Your mind belongs to you. It is yours and yours alone. Once politicians attempt to control what you believe, they are no longer politicians. They are by definition dictators. And if they succeed in controlling what you believe, you are no longer a citizen. You are not a free man. You are a slave. So yes, Tom Friedman, this is frightening. It's everywhere all of a sudden. No one is pushing back. Instead, they have all, almost every one of them, join the mob of censors, hysterics, and Jacobin destroyers, all working on behalf of entrenched power to take total control of everything. Oh, and I mean, this is, I think, like, we're in this, this moment where I think you and I probably both agree on this, where we have to recognize every little ease into a different form of fascism. You know, Donald Trump was very aggressive about it. He he threw us crises every single day, which is always in the fascist toolbook to make you, you know, uh, like you're just constantly chasing the next crisis and reacting to the like the last crisis from 24 hours ago. But this is different in that we're seeing folks parade um, themselves as populists, uh, become apologetic, uh, normalize different groups that, you know, by all means are pretty extreme. Um, simultaneously, while like trying to build these new coalitions, I mean, wh what's your take on what's happening right now as, as we ease into this, this new political landscape, if, if it's real, that is? Yeah, um, I would, I, I mean, I would hesitate to call this uh, fascism exactly. I think that it's, but, but I think that we can at least all agree that um, there's an impulse in certain uh, elements of the progressive coalition, I guess I would say, uh, that are kind of becoming uh, attuned to the arguments of the far right. And, you know, um, I think that there are you know, there are arguments that people have made for going on Tucker Carlson's show on Fox um, that while I personally wouldn't do it, um, and I'm not sure that I completely agree with these arguments, um, I at least will acknowledge that that, that some of them are legitimate. Um, 
even if I don't agree with them, I, I don't, I don't automatically think that they're just going on uh, for, you know, to, to normalize him or whatever, which is, which tends to be the result of what happens, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going on there for that reason. Um, at a certain point, does that matter? I don't know. That's kind of a separate uh, discussion, but I think that, you know, there, there, there has been more broadly an argument from people on the left uh, that it is a useful to kind of ally with people on the far right because there is a shared opposition of the center center right um, governing coalition for like the last you know for for decades in this country that uh, is very pro war and uh, you know pro corporate power and really only uses things like uh, you know language around civil rights uh, etc as as ways to perpetuate uh, those aims. And that's, that's definitely true that uh, the elements of the center and the governing coalition definitely do that. Um, you know, like there's nothing, there's nothing genuine about um, corporations uh, coming out with Black Lives Matter slogans over the summer. I mean, I don't think anybody buys that, right? Uh, but at the same time, um, that doesn't mean that, and, and I've been, um, you know, both in, 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 in my uh, journalism career and, and, uh, and, and even long before that have been, um, you know, uh, working against this back during the Ron Paul days when people like, it's like, I, I think the Ron Paul thing is really, is, is a really useful comparison for right now because Ron Paul got up on stage in 2008 during the Republican debates and said a lot of things that um, not only made sense, but were true about U.S. foreign policy, about why it was bad. Um, and, and a lot of people were like, oh, this is great. And, you know, setting aside all of his other policies, a lot of people on the left were like, oh, this is great. But like the thing about that is that, yes, like you may agree with the words that he's saying at this moment on stage, but where he is coming from to get to that answer and where you are coming from to get to that answer are different. And so right. it, you may have like a temporary alliance of agreeing with what he's saying in the moment, but don't let that confuse you to think that he's somebody who's on your side. And I think that that's what we're seeing right now, um, especially with, uh, you know, with, with certain people who who consider themselves on the left, or at least are are uh, advertising themselves that way, who are endorsing uh, working with far right militias and these far right groups. I mean, this stuff's been going on since I remember reading this argument in um, Ted Rawls' Un-American Manifesto, which I think came out in like 2011. Um, you know, this this argument itself is obviously uh, goes back decades, uh, much longer than. Uh, than our lifetimes, uh, you know that the that the socialist left should should, should ally with far right groups temporarily um, to overthrow the system. That that that's an old argument, but uh, this new version of it is is uh, is also older than just you know um, you know after Charlottesville uh, some 
loser comedian on YouTube saying that uh, that it was all a plot to, to divide the left and right. I mean, it goes it goes longer than 2017. It's been going on for a long time. Well, I mean, it's I think what's and sorry, I just I, yeah, go ahead. Go I just ahead. also I just also want to say that I would not um, analogize uh, Ted Rall and and the comedian that I'm talking about. They're they're, they're very different people. Ted Rall is uh, I have some disagreements with him, but he's a serious thinker. I cannot say after the other person. Well, I mean, okay, so so let's get to that in a second. I just want to welcome Lance um, from the Surface TV uh, joining us right now. Uh, he is the host of Surface TV. He's a political comedian and also has, I'm sure, a lot of opinions about what's happening right now in terms of this, this alliance. Uh, Lance, we were just discussing how there are segments of the right um, who probably put themselves out as being more populist, uh, if I'm going to speak very loosely and 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 segments of uh, the self-described left that also purports themselves to be more populist that are, are teaming up, whether it's comedians uh, advocating for partnering with the Boogaloos or, um, or you know, reporters uh, appearing on Fox News and agreeing with uh, Tucker Carlson when they go on Fox News. And, you know, we, we what I wanted to address on this is just how we have to be very conscious of these things. And they don't just happen on, by accident. And when we build out alliances, I mean, I, my background was first in organizing. And so one of the first things you learn as an organizer is uh, you meet people where they are and you work with like the low hanging fruit. I'm just gonna say Nazis are not a low hanging fruit <laughs> <laughs> or the Boogaloos or whatever you wanna call them. Um, you know, I'm sure you guys can all sit in your right wing corner and debate what what uh, version of far right you are. But let's just say the far left uh, best tactic would not necessarily be to radicalize uh, the far right with the one issue you might agree on. Um, it's really more about building these larger coalitions and and bringing in folks who our first up, there's just more, more of them. And also it's easier to get to them. So um, Lance, I mean, like you're, you're watching this and you're involved in it closely. What, what would you say for leftists who may not be as extremely online as all of us are um, in terms of like why this is important, why we, we shouldn't just overlook it? One of the things I would uh, concern myself with, especially when it comes to the Boogaloo Boys in particular, is that uh, the alt-right, which technically are, you know, modern day white supremacists, uh, they're really good at rebranding and they have been for a while. That's basically one of the reasons Richard Spencer invented the term alt-right. It's an alternative to the right wing, but at the same time, it is a way of rebranding the fact that they are white nationalists and they don't want to be known as white nationalists openly. So it sounds a lot better. It's aesthetically pleasing. The Boogaloo Boys are even more complicated for people who aren't terminally online like uh, us, I guess, on this panel, because the Boogaloo Boys are basically uh, an aberration of meme culture. They've evolved from 4chan, Reddit threads, and what started out as things in memeology kind of grew. And it's it's kind of like you, I, I like to compare it to the ring, you know, when it kind of like jumps out of the computer, or the TV into the real world. It's It's gone from the internet into the real world. And they're also 
elements of it, it they there are boogaloo boys who of course are not white supremacists they're like any organization they're very large there are boogaloo boys who are white supremacists but there's one unifying factor between all of them and that is they want to involve themselves in what they see as an upcoming civil war whether that's going to be a civil war between races a civil war between uh classes that doesn't matter they think if there is an incoming civil war and the elements within it that are white supremacists are exceptionally dangerous and then to try and align yourself with that because there might be some crossover between the left and the boogaloo boys because they have shared interests is also extremely dangerous um also i, I don't know who we're talking about uh in specifics when you say comedians or youtube personalities i'm just gonna say my ears are burning uh but when it comes to that whole scenario uh and perhaps a, a certain interview that took place if someone's in the interview telling you that they're an anarchist uh because they're an anarcho capitalist they're not an anarchist just by definition and, and for some reason those two keep getting deflated or sorry conflated and uh to title your video like radical anarchist uh seeks to bridge bill or build bridge is is very disingenuous like I, I wouldn't do that in general if if someone who we're not talking about had done that well, and, and, and like, you know, without going through rhetorical like spiral, just in terms of debate, finding one person as the complete anomaly to represent a group and literally does not reflect that group's interests or based on what they're saying. I, I think it's, it's, it's not just disingenuous, it's dangerous. And, you know, the reason why I want to talk about this is there is a precedent, as, as Owen says, I mean, whether you could look at some of the tactics that have happened overseas in Europe, uh, you know, you could look at red-brown alliances, you could look at uh, the five-star movement, uh, how uh, even arguably you could even say like the president of Mexico built this coalition between the right and, and the left. And I don't know if he's leaning that left anymore, um, as we all had hoped at one point. So there's danger to this. And we're not in a parliamentary system. We don't have to have these crazy coalitions uh, to win. Uh, but launching the Patriot Party and a supposed party uh, on the left at the same time, it's just alarming. And whether or not they're going to have electoral wins or not, they've all been very clear, openly, in writing, that they want to end, cancel, ruin the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, um, which is just, just not feasible. So what, what is, I mean, Owen, what do you see as the result of this? Is, other than chaos, is anything? I mean, I'm, 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 I'm totally in favor of uh, uh, the destruction of the Democratic Party. Uh, you know, in, in, in theory, that'd be great. Uh, but I don't see it happening through movement for a people's party uh which you know for uh, which i have a lot of i have a lot of trouble taking them seriously for a lot of reasons uh you know one because when they launched um their driving reason like they're driving uh you know the, the way that they thought that they were going to um make this happen was that they were somehow going to draft bernie sanders to join them um which like if you if that's your plan um in 2017 uh, like you're just not a serious person like uh, that's that's not that's not going to happen under was any that circumstances actually their strategy or was their strategy just yeah. to pull people in through that i mean maybe that exciting. was maybe that was their strategy maybe 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 they wanted to get attention but um but that was their strategy that they were putting forward back in 2017 um which was just laughable it just not just not serious not serious stuff um 
uh, you know, for something like the Patriot Party, I also have a hard time taking that seriously. I mean, this is Trump. This is not a uh, political actor who has a lot of energy or enthusiasm to really do anything. All he wants is for the cult of personality that he has um, incubated in the, in, the, in the modern Republican Party to continue. So uh, as, as far as like any real movement on this stuff, I, I find it hard to, hard to believe that that would happen. But, um, you know, just, but even assuming that they did get what they wanted, that they somehow um, created this chaos and took down a bunch of Democrats and a bunch of Republicans, um, let's, let's look at this. Let's assume that, uh, that somehow they both win 20 House seats uh, they, they both do, they, you know, take from each respective party um, and, and a couple of Senate seats. Uh, what does that look like? Okay, like you can't govern in the majority. So you're going to caucus with um, the party that is, you know, as closely aligned to you as it can be. So you're just in the same situation. You just have, um, I guess you have a slightly more progressive wing but you know given given the people who are involved with movement for people's party um especially uh you have you're gonna have a lot of people who i think are a little questionable on their alliances there um you know and and any party that's trying to and just to be very clear when you say questionable these are people who have denied uh genocides they've denied mass shootings uh that they've existed you know in in uh, in uh vegas um, they peddle conspiracy theories regularly, but, oh, and like you team them up with somebody very legitimate and it, 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 it amplifies, I mean, it, it, it normalizes. I mean, we were talking about normalizing Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson is the largest audience in the country. He doesn't need normalization. He is the normal. But when you have like fringe conspiracy theorists going on stage with people who have served in senior roles in the presidential campaigns or have very real uh, audience who won, won uh, journalistic awards. I mean, these are, you don't put these quote, it's just, it, it's dangerous because it, it makes people think it's legitimate and they, it makes the extremists seem like they've been legitimized. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know anything about uh, specific conspiracy theories, but um, like uh, genocide denying or, or, or the Vegas, like I don't pay a lot of attention. Uh, well, I mean, I'm just like, I don't pay a lot of attention to Jimmy Dore other than the fact that I know that, that, that he is very friendly with uh, people on, on the Tulsi Gabbard extreme right wing. And so I know that, you know, he's, he's friendly with them. That's, that's really, but, um, but I'm sure that there are, other people within the uh, within the, within this uh, coalition who, who who probably have some questionable views. To to me, um, the alliance with that part of the quote unquote left movement um, in in the U.S. is just kind of a non-starter for me, and so that's kind of where I'm coming from. Lance, um, you know, I, I want to move on to one more thing in in a second, but just in terms of where this is going, I we've hesitated to talk too much about it on the show, um, but it's not that I personally think that they're going to grow to this movement that's going to put like you know uh, the left in 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 disarray. Um, it's that the utility of them is to attack leftists left and right and to create drama and um, 
and shift the conversation, which is literally what's happening right now on our show. We usually cover several topics in this part, part of the show, uh, but instead we have to deal with calling out what this strategy is. And I believe it's a red-brown alliance. It's an attempt at that. I don't think it's going to be effective, but where do you see this going? Uh, I didn't know I was joining a drama stream today, Nomiki. This is wild. Uh, oh, come so... on. You've been on Twitter all week. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, I, I stream like on Twitch. So like... <laughs> um, okay, so I, I actually do live in a parliamentary system. I'm, I'm, I think, the only Canadian on the panel right now. So I can tell you this uh, from the future of our imaginary made-up land up here. Um, in a parliamentary system, we do have multiple parties. And one of the things they often do is they will coalesce if they're politically ineffective. So we had uh, our current conservative party uh, used to be splintered into two different factions. So one of the things that Donald Trump tried to do by creating the People's Party, in my opinion, would effectively be more damaging to the Republican Party than anything else. So uh, if I was in um, uh, in America, I would be like, please, sir, do it. Like whatever it takes. I would. I, I personally might even canvass for the for the Patriot Party if it comes down to it, just to just to help them uh, destroy what is left of the Republicans in, in tatters right now. Unfortunately, the same thing goes in the opposite direction. If the Democrats are trying to establish a third party, I, I have no problem with them doing that if they want to do it in the way that, say, Cornell West proposed on the Bad Faith podcast in that they're going to be as politically effective as possible within the two-party system. That, to me, is actually a novel idea I hadn't thought of. Um, in terms of aligning with the Boogaloo boys, um, make no mistake, they are a far-right group and should be labeled as one. Like Any kind of rebranding that they're trying to do, do not allow them to do that. Don't let them have the narrative, no matter who's pushing it. They are not leftist. Uh, you can be uh, pro-LGBTQ and still be interested in, say, uh, nationalism, things of that nature, right? Uh, just because they have elements of their, or just of one personality who might be trying to like do some really good PR, that doesn't mean as a whole, suddenly they should be anything other than what they are currently labeled as. Okay, last before we go, um, <laughs> while we've been on the show, the Senate Democrats and and uh, and the Congressional Democrats put forward their fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage uh, goal. Right, their their plan is to. Are you ready for it? To introduce legislation to raise the federal minimum wage from seven twenty five to fifteen dollars by twenty twenty five. Wah, wah. <laughs> I'm, I'm saying it in silence because if, if our minimum wage, just with inflation, not counting cost of living, not cost, counting so many other factors that really should be considered, if our minimum wage had stayed uh, up with inflation, it would be $34 an hour nationwide. Now imagine, you know, partner that with living in a big city where the cost of rent is much higher, where the cost of goods is much higher. Uh, you know, this, this is, this is, how can they get away with this? 2025? Uh, oh, and I mean, do you think this is going to blow back? I, I just, I just feel like this is like a really bad PR move for them while they actually have the ability to do some really big things. Yeah. I mean, they have the ability to. I mean, it, it seems it's more and more clear that they're not going to do anything. Uh, that's that's uh, uh, not, not that they won't do anything, but it, it just doesn't seem like they're interested in taking the kind of steps that they need to uh, to make things, uh, you know, to kind of recover the the economic crash that we're going and through and and and. Uh, 
you, you know, like the, this filibuster stuff, the, you know, the fact that Manchin doesn't, you know, the, the, the like renegotiating the $1,400 checks that were already renegotiated down from $2,000, no matter how you look at that, like very clear messaging stuff there. Now they're going to, you know, $15, which this is not new. I mean, they were always going to have $15 by 2025, but that's just not enough. And, um, you know, you know, I know we're getting close to wrap and I don't want to like uh, go too into fart to Lance's time. So I guess I'll just kind of just say that like um, if, if nothing else, like if, if they don't take big steps, including like $15 an hour should already be where we're at. Like they should just do it immediately. Um, but if they don't, if, if they don't take a lot of big steps here, I mean, probably looking at, at, at a really big red wave in 2022, like, like you have one shot and I know that it's only been six days now, oh. like that's six days that you need those, like you're blowing it. Like just, just do some big stuff and, 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 and get it done and stop like this, uh, at least, at least start the negotiation here instead of like down here. I mean, this is what we saw all throughout the Obama years where they would start where they wanted the compromise to be or where they would say that they wanted the compromise to be and then get negotiated down. So it's very frustrating to see it uh, happen again. And this is kind of, uh, this kind of, I, I kind of went off on a different tangent, but. You're right. I mean, th- this is the moment to do it. We, we said at the top of the show that 100 days, whatever, this is the moment. Republicans are in disarray. The Democrats are in power. They're beholden to us. They don't have time to be distracted by, I mean, the Republicans are literally like, like trying to figure out where they stand on things like did Trump cause the insurrection? Did the, did the leaders aren't on the same page about issues? And so we have an opportunity right now to really pressure Democrats to be bold. Also, the moment that we are in is the leverage as well. Not only do we have the political leverage, but we have the actual moment to say 15 effing dollars an hour, too little, too late. We've been fighting for this for 10 years and it was already too low. And the only reason they picked it was because it was alliteration. Literally, that was the, that's why they choose, chose fight for 15. Um, I mean, Lance, like, are we blowing it? Well, I I actually do have a quick question, though, just because I've already heard a liberal pushback on this. Is that the amount or the timeline that Bernie Sanders originally proposed? Great question. I actually don't know off the top of my head. Way to put. Yeah, I don't know. But 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 if if it is, that sucks, too. You know, no, absolutely. I'm not not saying that's an excuse. I was curious, though, because I'm already seeing that pushback online. So I was seeing I was wondering if that if that was actually the case. But no, I I mean, both of you are right. It's uh, it's it's kind of survival at this point. I don't think a lot of people can wrap their heads around the idea that by 2025, if that's when it's proposed, then, uh, you know, $15 minimum wage will be even less valuable at that point in time, not to mention, uh, like, 40 million Americans, I believe right now, are at the risk of losing their homes. Uh, there's no safety nets in that country uh, being provided. This was, in my opinion, one of those like last ditch efforts, right? Like we were, we're not going to be doing what other countries are doing, which is giving uh, every single citizen uh, an allotted amount of money each month to live off since you cannot leave your house, since you might not be able to work, stuff like that. Um, so this this was one of those, like, I don't even want to call it an olive branch. This was like a, a safety net at the, at the bare bones minimum in order to increase the living minimum minimum wage, but I was uh, assuming it would be almost an emergency provision act, like we have to do this now. Um, the argument on the other end is that, well, if they do not do this uh, in this order, then perhaps uh, the rollout will destroy small businesses and stuff of that nature. 
I don't think you can put forth that argument at this time, though. Like, we're already living through a period in which that's happening. You can do other programs. You can get the government to subsidize it, for example. You can get the government to incentivize uh, companies to be able to pay their employees more. Um, other countries are achieving this, and they're not the richest country on earth. So I don't think there's really an excuse. Well, and not only just that, I mean, it could be, you could, we could push for local campaigns. I mean, if, if $15 an hour in New York, Miami, Chicago, any major city in America is not a living wage at all. It is a poverty wage. And so, you know, I, I would say progressives, let's like work together and push for higher minimum wages in bigger cities. And, you know, if you're worried about small businesses, small business rent control would be really great. Um, also, uh, maybe may make sure that businesses that have over 75 employees are the ones that uh, can really take that. Because when you do live in a big city and you have a Google or an Amazon or any of these other uh, larger companies, they can afford it. And you know very well that they are doing very little right now to protect their workers in a time of crisis. Uh, oh, and I think you, you wanted to say something. Nope, you're good. All right. Uh, thank you guys Excellent. so much. Tax the rich. Uh, tax the rich and tax real estate, man. I mean, these guys get these abatements. And they don't pay into it at all. And uh, they're welcomed into cities and they, they drive up the cost of living. So uh, Owen Higgins, thanks for joining us for the first time. Lance from the Surfs. Go check him out on Twitch. Streaming live right now, I think. Yes. Is that what's going on? You were streaming Absolutely. live. Good. I was going to say, can you shout out your channel too, just so everyone who's watching on our end can. Oh, yes. Uh, our Twitch channel is the Nomiki Show. <laughs> It's underscore the, wait, underscore the, underscore Nomihi, underscore show. I think I got that right. I, I feel like it's not too hard to find, and I'm sure somebody's going to jump in there right now and, and edit it for me, because every single time I say it, I mess it up. But uh, thank you to everybody who's on Twitch right now. Thank you to Owen Higgins and Lance from the Surfs. And we've got a little, we've got a few shout outs here I got to go through right now. Ian Kinzel says, really hurting your, <laughs> you're really hurting your boutique left branding here with all these actual working class voices on your show. <laughs> talking about our earlier segment, we were talking about the teacher strike. Uh, thanks for that, Ian. And Prairie Fire Kowalski from Nebraska sends his love. And JL says, thank you. Thank you. Peter Low Fre Frequency, happy early birthday. Snow day from work today here in Colorado so I can watch live. Thank you. Always love seeing you all over. My other favorite shows as well. Hope you get invited back to the morning trap soon i had so much fun on that show you gotta go check oh actually it's not morning the new okay there's morning trap and then there's the evening one so i have to go do the new morning one um it's amazing harvey k thanks for mixing it up in the chat and for being part of our first uh book club book series we have two if, if you're part of the book club uh we have the second interview going up right now today and Huge thanks to Midi Docs for working the algorithms and special thanks to our mods, Bob Choke and the Orb, Chuck Diesel on YouTube and Dorian Sapiens and A Difficult Truth on Twitch for keeping our live chats troll free. Oh, we have a, we have a little alert. Look at this. Thank you so much, Dorsey. Uh, so on January 16th, 2019, Senator Bernie Sanders and Representatives Bobby Scott from Virginia announced that they would introduce the Raise the Wage Act of 2019 a bill that would raise the federal minimum wage in six steps to $15 an hour by 2024. Beginning in 2025, the minimum wage would be indexed to median wages so that each year the minimum wage would automatically be adjusted based on growth in the median wage. The bill would also gradually increase the sub-minimum work wage for tip workers uh, or tipped minimum wage, which has been fixed at $2.13 per hour since 1991 until it reaches parity with the regular minimum wage. As a former server myself, for years, for years, I was a server. 
and hopefully I'll never have to do it again. I love it, but it's like wear and tear on your body. Um, it, it's ridiculous. I mean, you're, uh, if, if, you, if you have a chance, go check out, uh, it's in the archives, uh, an interview we did with Rep Rab, who's on Thursdays, and he talked about the legacy of tipping and how uh, it was always a form of racism. And so it's an amazing tippet. I didn't know this. So uh, go check that out if you have a chance. I mean, I, I ran for public advocate on raising the minimum wage to $30 an hour. Um, that was something that I thought very deeply about, got a lot of pushback on, but ultimately, you know, we need to raise wages and lower rents and obviously put in a lot of other things like Medicare for all. But in a city like New York, you cannot survive off of really anything below $30 an hour. Um, the rents are just too damn high. Your, your iced coffee is like $5.50 at least. Uh, so it's just not the city it used to be. And we really have to have bigger conversations that I personally never thought $15 was enough even 10 years ago when the campaign first started. All right, everybody. Thank you for joining us on Twitch. Thank you for joining us on YouTube and everywhere else on all of the podcasts. We're checking us out later. We are so grateful to you and especially grateful to our patrons. Go check us out at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. We will be back tomorrow. Tomorrow's a special day for me. Uh, tomorrow, Wednesday, January 27th. Join us here, 3 p.m. Eastern, live on the Nomi Key Show. See you tomorrow. Be well.